We are continuing our series through the book of Jonah, and we're in chapter 2 now. And so if you would uh, open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or uh, glance at your hologram, whatever technology you have now, pretty soon we'll be doing that. Uh, just a quick word before we get into uh, the Word of God here. Um, see some faces I've, I've passed in previous Sundays, some I've seen in the church directory for the first time, and some new faces. And uh, please, if you have a moment, stick around after the service so we can uh, just at least, uh, um, so I can meet you or we can talk to each other and, and get to know you. So I'm excited about these new relationships, and, uh, and I'm just excited to be here. And so I'm looking forward to, to meeting everyone and getting to know everyone. It's going to take a little bit of time, but uh, just give me a chance, and, uh, and we hope to, uh, to know you and to know your family and to, uh, and to be able to uh, become friends. And <clears throat> Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Father, thank you for, for your grace, for the knowledge that you suffer long with us. Um, we are often perplexed and burdened by, um, by our trials, by our sufferings and by the burden and weight of life, but uh, your grace abides with us. Open our hearts this morning as we, as we move through this passage of Scripture and help us to glean the wisdom of this text. Convict us and convince us of the Word of God, and let us leave this place changed, renewed, and different than the way we came. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. The movie Gravity, um, 
is a 2013 science fiction thriller about an astronaut played by Sandra Bullock who's stranded in space after uh, the mid-orbit destruction of her space shuttle and subsequent attempt to return to Earth. The scenery alone creates a sense of awesome wonder, and watching it feels like a cinematic liturgy, prompting the viewer to ponder life's biggest questions, existence, life, death, love, survival. As things go from bad to worse in outer space, Bullock's character engages with a di in a dialogue with herself. Um, she's alone against the backdrop of space, space's vast, uh, dark expanse. And what becomes evident is that any appeal for help from a transcendent and all-powerful being is simply absent. But you feel like Bullock's character wants to cry out for God, even though she doesn't. In fact, she repeats to herself over and over, nobody ever taught me to pray. At times, you simply can't tell if she'll make it out of this nightmare alive. And in the final scene, spoiler alert, okay, she manages to attempt uh, a return to Earth with a small one-person pod that nearly burns up upon re-entry. The whole time she's terrified, and the sense of fear and adrenaline is palpable. I couldn't tell if it was deliberate on the part of the director or not, but the whole time I, I just couldn't help to feel as a viewer that I was intended to feel like something was protecting her through the whole harrowing ordeal. Narrowly escaping death in space and then narrowly escaping death upon re-entering Earth's atmosphere, she lands on what looks like uh, a remote Southeast Asian lagoon. In the final scene, she drags herself onto the muddy sand, elated and amazed she's actually alive. She pauses smiles, and with her eyes closed, whispers the words, thank you. And the movie ends. Chapter 2 of Jonah is a psalm of thanksgiving. That he prays inside the fish because God has delivered him from death. It's an important and necessary link because it explains to us how Jonah ends up where he's at in chapter 3, which we'll see next week. Some scholars and commentators think that the narrative, the, 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 the poem, the psalm of thanksgiving in chapter 2 doesn't belong there, but without it, we wouldn't be able to make sense of the fact that in the end of chapter 1, Jonah's in the ocean, and the beginning of chapter 3, he's resumed the mission that God has given him. We talked about last week um, how Jonah's revolt is a fundamental rejection of the fact that God saves who he wants to. Jonah is struggling in chapter 1 to reconcile evangelism and the sovereignty of God. What Jonah knows in his head 
about the grace of God hasn't changed his heart. And God's got just the recipe for a conversion. And so the first thing we look at in chapter 2 is rescue. The idea of rescue. In verse 17, just just to recap the end of uh, chapter 1, the Lord appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, and he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And there's some significance to the mention of the fact that that this isn't arbitrary. The three days and three nights is a, an ancient Hebrew motif. The idea of death and the ordeal of death and the finality of death happening after three days. If you think about the New Testament, you think about the fact, obviously, that Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights. Um, <clears throat> Lazarus is dead four days, which is an attempt to communicate that he's not only dead, not just three days, he's good and dead. In fact, the text says uh, when Jesus shows up on the scene, by now he stinks. I grew up on the King James Version, which says, by now, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) But it's an attempt to communicate that Lazarus is not just dead, the finality of three days, but four days, he's good and dead. There's no way Lazarus is coming back. The prophet Hosea says something very similar. He says, we will be cast down, and after three days, the Lord will bring us up again. And so the idea here that Jonah is uh, three days uh, in the belly of the fish is, communicates to us that uh, he's been brought back from the, the brink of death. Sheol is, a, was, was, is kind of a generic term, and it, it, it means the underworld. Jonah's gone to the underworld and back. And so uh, in non-Hebrew literature of the time, the idea was that it took three days to travel to the underworld. And so this imagery is converging that Jonah has been brought back from the very brink of something that most people, people just don't come back from. And so it communicates God's awesome power of rescue. During this time inside the fish, Jonah is not unconscious. He's not um, jaded. He is thinking, learning. He's alert. An unconscious Jonah won't do for God's purposes. He's awake. He knows what's going on. And we're told that Jonah prays and he calls out and God answers. And he says, you heard me from the womb of Sheol. You cast me into the deep. I was driven from your sight. I went down to a land whose bars closed in on me. But yet you brought up my life again. Jonah is calling to God, he's recalling, he's, he's, he's praying out this thanksgiving and he's reliving in a prayer from the fish's belly what God has just done for him. In cha- last week in chapter 1 we talked about how God said rise and go up, but Jonah rose to, to go away. So God says go to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish, 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 it's a hard to pronounce, Tarshish. He's supposed to go up, but he goes down. 
to Joppa to board a ship. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep down into the belly of the ship, and now here he's down into the water. God says, go up, and what's interesting there is disobedience takes us down. Doesn't, it doesn't elevate us. Sometimes it, you know, we can think when we do what we want to do, there's a sense of autonomy that we have true freedom, but it doesn't take us up, it takes us down. Jonah's disobedience of God's command takes him down and down and down, and Jonah is recalling the experience, and he says, you cast me into the deep. I was driven from your sight. I don't know if I shared this last week uh, about going to Catalina every summer. Did I share that? I don't know if I communicated it, but we would go snorkeling, and there was a pier, and the pier had this massive, if you went you know, 15, 20 feet underwater and you had your goggles on, there was a massive chain at the end of the pier, and it disappeared into the deep as the, the waters got deeper. And I would assume there was an anchor out there somewhere. I don't know what it was, but there was just this awesome sense of the deep blue. Catalina's 22 miles off the coast of, of Southern California. And so when you stared out there, it, it just sent shudders down your spine, and you kind of wanted to come back up to the surface and swim back closer towards uh, the shore. And Jonah says, you cast me into the deep. I was driven from your sight. I went to a land whose bars closed in on me, but you brought my life up again. And one of the things that should be crystal clear for us that we should glean from this passage is that God crushes Jonah and he mends Jonah. God crushes us sometimes and God mends us. You may be right now in a crushing phase of life where you're being crushed. Something is happening in your life where it doesn't feel like God is your friend. It's a crushing phase, a time where, for whatever reason, things are not happy. They're not joyous. If you've been walking the Christian life any amount of time, you can readily recognize that in the best times, as enjoyable as they are, there's not tons of spiritual growth. It's in those moments of crushing it's in those moments of agony, perplexing pain that we grow, that we cry out for God, that we reach out for him. God knows exactly how to bring us back. God knows exactly the things we need for us to have a change of heart and a change of mind, and that's exactly what's gone on here with Jonah. God doesn't have to kill Jonah, but he takes him to the very brink of death. Trials confront our sins, and they change our thinking, and they change our heart. And fierce trials change the way we think about life and existence, and the fiercest trials both traumatize and transform us and can scar us permanently. The fiercest trials can scar us. And Jonah's situation gives him an embedded humility that only comes from scars, Remember, Jonah is, was exalted in pride. We talked last week about how God's command to preach to the Ninevites is outrageous. 
It's an outrageous command. After all, Yahweh is the God that protects Israel. Destroying Israel's enemies seemed like the right thing to do. But God wants to reach out to Israel's enemies? It seems like an outrageous thing to do. Jonah's pride needs to get knocked down, and so God is going to scar him. And scars come from pressure and pain and suffering, and they come often from even unjust suffering. Perhaps the pain of, of struggle is what God wants because that's the very thing we need. It's the very thing Jonah needed, the pain of struggle. Even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, Hebrews 5 and 8. John Newton once wrote as a young divinity student that too many young ministers come out of their training as dogmatic know-it-alls. He continues, not as the necessary fault of the institution, but as the frequent effects of notions too hastily picked up. When not sanctified by grace, nor balanced by our proportionable depth of spiritual experience. Perhaps maturity in a person and leadership comes when, instead of fighting against the suffering, we embrace it as a part of what it means to follow Jesus. We ask the question, do others see in us uh, the embedded humility that only comes from scars? Pride is the one thing that is evident to everyone but us. It's kind of a, a poison that stinks to everyone but the person who's guilty of it. So like Jonah, God's purposes are never to destroy us or leave us in despair, but sometimes he lets us come so close to the edge of catastrophe that when he rescues us, it's unmistakably him. The Bible says that God will not share his glory with another. God often takes us through trials and experiences that when we're brought back from the brink of them, we know this was only God. It was only God who did this. Sometimes we need those experiences. For Jonah, what it yields and what it produces is repentance. This is not only a psalm of thanksgiving, it's also a demonstration of how this harrowing experience has caused him to repent. God has knocked his pride down, and here he is now with a heart uh, of repentance. In verse 7, uh, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's kind of like the person who says, oh God, if you just deliver me from this, I promise I'll serve you. You know, you've heard that kind of, you know, cliched phrase. Maybe you've, in your younger years, or maybe recently I've said it. I, I've, I've heard it a million times, you know. Someone said, I, I told the Lord, if he just delivered me from this, you know, I would serve him and you know, I remember a comedian years ago, uh, um, I don't remember who it was, George Lopez, he, something happened to him and he said he, if, if he got in a situation, some dangerous situation where he promised he would go to some 
some Catholic city in Italy and he'd walk on his knees, you know, you know, on some brick cobblestone road for a mile or something. But this vow, Jonah has been delivered and he's saying, Lord, I will, I'll pay what I, what, what I have vowed to you. I'll serve you. You've delivered me. In fact, it's kind of in process. Lord, if you just, you know, deliver me and I'll serve you. And that's, Jonah is, he's, he's, he's repentant. His heart has turned. There's been a shift because of this traumatic experience. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, sin scorches us most only after it has come under the light of God's forgiveness and not before. We're not truly uh, uh, convicted in, in the truest sense of our sin before we're forgiven. You just think about it for a moment. Think about the things that you shudder at, things you've done in your past that make you shudder. While you were committing them, and even when you initially repented, you may have known it was wrong and God was restoring it, but you can look back now with clarity and realize just how, how bad it was, how horrific it was, how, how terrible it was. God's forgiveness gives us a clarity and an understanding that we're able to understand our sin clearly. We've got a clear vision of, of how we've, how we've uh, transgressed God's law how we violated God's mercy and grace. But that comes after God's forgiveness. God's mercy has produced in Jonah a heart of thanksgiving and a heart of repentance. And what's interesting is the mercy produced that. It is true that when we cry out to God in repentance, he hears us and forgives us and restores us, and all of those things are true, but... God knows often that we can't even really formulate a repentant heart without God working in us by his spirit. And what is Jonah's sin? Well, everyone has a moral law in them. A moral code written on the heart. God uses it to restrain the human race from descending into total chaos. C.S. Lewis looks at the fact that there is this common moral thread in all cultures and in all times, and he says there has to be a moral lawgiver. This is a part of his argument in his book, Mere Christianity, to say, look, God's existence is self-evident from the fact that all men have some kind of common morality. Certain things are sins to all people. Certain things, you know, you don't, in any culture, you can't steal another man's wife. In any culture, you know, you can't just murder an innocent person. There are certain things that we all kind of connect with as human beings, and that's evidence that God has written a law on our heart. Um, and this law says, don't do bad things, do good things. <clears throat> um, and until we're touched by the Holy Spirit, we think this can get us into heaven. So here's where that kind of common moral thread in all human beings ends. Because we're sinners, we pervert this understanding and we start to size each other up against our neighbor. Say, well, I'm better than you. Here, here are my list of good things. And you violate these. And we never, we never end up um, judging ourselves by the standard we judge others by. We pervert to truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1. So we take this kind of code that's embedded in us because we're made in the image of God and because we're sinners, we pervert it. And so Jonah has essentially believed uh, the myth of the self-made man. He's an Israelite, he's a prophet, 
He belongs to God's chosen holy people, but for some reason he thinks he's gotten there on his own. He's forgotten that the grace that the Ninevites need, he needs too. He's judged his neighbor, he's judged his brother, and he thinks that he is the object of God's grace, love, and favor because of something he ultimately deserved. He was born an Israelite. Jonah says in his heart, I deserve God's love because I'm an Israelite, and the Ninevites don't because they're heathen pagans. But we do the exact same thing in, slightly different, in a slightly different way, though. How so? We see people in rebellion to God, and instead of desiring their salvation, we rejoice we're not like them, you see? We exalt we're not like them, you know? It makes us feel better about ourselves. Jonah doesn't want the, the rottenness of the Ninevites to be eliminated because it makes him feel better about who he is. And we kind of do the same thing. We may not realize it. You think of the, the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector in the temple. Here's what's interesting about that story, and this is an illustration to illustrate where Jonah's heart is with the Ninevites. The Pharisee is the guy with great theology, for the most part. He knows the Torah. He knows God's law. He knows who the true God is. He knows stuff. You know, he knows the truth. He's got good theology. But the Pharisee is condemned because of his attitude, right? You remember the prayer? He says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy, this, this, this tax collector. You know, he's, what's interesting is uh, the Pharisee is not praying to God. He's really praying to himself. His prayer is directed at himself. It's he's praying about himself. I thank you, God, that I am not like this guy. You know, his, you know he's really patting himself on the back. And the tax collector is commended, though, in contrast. Why? Because the sinner who knows he's a sinner is better in some sense, in many senses, than the saint who forgot. That's Jonah's predicament. The sinners, the Ninevites, right? They're not, they're not under any delusions about being right with the God of Israel. But Jonah is, is confused about how he's gotten where he's at. He thinks that he doesn't need the grace that the Ninevites need, or that it's not, it, it, he's not in the same boat. In fact, the only thing separating him is the grace of God. If you can't relate to the fallenness of people in the world, um, you may be ignoring the fact that the only thing separating them from you is really God's grace. At times, because of this, God is pleased, like in Jonah's case, to remind us through a crisis that requires a rescue that, that, that God reminds us that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This culmination of, of Jonah's predicament and prayer and realization that happens in verse 9. He cries out, he thanks God, he realizes he's been rescued, he doesn't deserve it, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, you have the right to save who you want to. His struggle with evangelism and the sovereignty of God, God's, right, God's freedom to save whoever he wants, he realizes salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, you save who you want 
You break, you crush, you mend. You cast me down, you lift me up again. You brought up my life from the deep. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We all need to be reminded of that. And we all find ourselves at times in predicaments where we need rescue. And it's not an accident. God sovereignly ordains ordeals like that. You find yourself in a predicament and in an ordeal where we need God's rescue, embrace it. God is drawing us close. He's, he's bathing us again in the knowledge of his grace and our need for it. In fact, Christian maturity never means we get beyond the place where we need God's grace. It never means that. It never means that we get to a place where we understand the Bible, we understand what it means to serve the Lord, we understand the nature of God and theology and all these different things, that we are exempt now. We don't need the grace of God anymore. We always need it. We always need the grace of God. In fact, we're, we're really just sinners who recognize that God's grace is the only remedy to our brokenness, and we found out where the life-giving well is. That, that's really what's going on. It's a life-giving well. We know where it's at, and we're telling others, here's the life-giving well, and we just keep drinking from this well. And then finally, the rescue and the repentance that happens to Jonah yields a recommitment. Verse 10, he says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Douglas Stewart, uh, commenting on this turn of events, remarks, Death is what Jonah deserved. It is, the one, uh, it is in one sense the ultimate covenant punishment. Jonah had not wanted the sailors to die, so he had volunteered to be killed that they might be spared. They had not violated the covenant he had. He, like the disgusting Ninevites, was now a covenant transgressor. Yet he had been allowed to live on to praise, to sacrifice, and to vow further worship of God. In all of this, there's a bit of irony going on. In fact, there's a lot of irony going on in the book of Jonah. The pagans are doing what Jonah should be doing. They cry out for God on the boat. Jonah doesn't. They sacrifice on the boat. Jonah gets thrown into the water, and now he's coming around, following the good example of the pagans. I mean, the, the, the irony is glaring here, right? The, the, the man of God, the prophet, who is supposed to behave in a way that exemplifies the rest of the world, this is what it means to follow God obediently, has failed. The pagans are doing it. The pagan sailors are crying out in fear before the Lord, and they're sacrificing. They made vows, it says, and they sacrificed, and now Jonah's learning from them. Yeah, Lord, I will pay what I vow. I will sacrifice sacrifices to you. The irony is teaching us that, as, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we never move beyond that place where we need as much grace as the rankest, vilest sinner. We need the same grace. We never, we never can get into a place in our heart where we exalt ourselves above them, we vaunt ourselves, puff ourselves up, or we think we're somehow better, right? It's the one thing that, that unbelievers complain the most of. It's that holier-than-thou, 
right? You've heard it a million times, but that's exactly what drives the world nuts. And it's exactly the thing that we struggle with the most. The forgiveness we've received, we've, we struggle to, to, to you know, give out that forgiveness. We struggle with it. So there's this recommitment here. God had allowed him to live on, to praise, to sacrifice, and to vow further worship. Our own ordeals of trial and suffering, punishment and forgiveness, are never meant to destroy us. They're not. We feel like it. When we're being crushed under the weight of suffering and of trials, we feel that God is my enemy. But it's not meant to do that. Suffering and trials are never meant to destroy us. They're meant to change us. Jonah, in a very real sense, in the belly of the fish, is transformed to some degree. He's born again. In fact, the use of the word belly and womb here in the text is, is not a mistake. He's, he's reborn to become the person that God wants him to be. And we'll see from chapters 3 and 4 that he still struggles. doesn't mean he's, he comes out the bionic man, perfect. But it means that there's a transformation that takes place where in the belly of the fish, through this episode of suffering and rescue, he's changed. Our ordeals are meant to transform us, to change us, to renew us, and to renew our thinking that we have and put on the mind of Christ that we change our thoughts. God wants to change Jonah's mind and his heart and conform him to his will and his purpose. When God restores us from trials, it's to get us to fulfill his purposes. The worship of God, the witness to the good news of his son Jesus, and the caring for our neighbors with grace-filled deeds of mercy. When we stray from God, God takes necessary measures like Jonah, like he did with Jonah, to restore us to that end. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out with the voice of thanksgiving. We proclaim, O oh God, our continued need for your grace, for your mercy. And Lord, with the voice of repentance, we, we, put, we, we throw ourselves before your throne. We acknowledge that we continually need your grace and your forgiveness. We are sinners saved by grace. Help us to never forget that. Father, we see from, from this passage, Lord, that you don't desire to destroy us in our suffering but sometimes you crush us to break us and break up our hard hearts that we might think your thoughts after you, that we might do your will and obey you. And for that, O oh God, we're grateful. Lord, touch our hearts and our minds this morning as we, Lord, Lord, as we go on about our day and even our week, that in our hearts and in our minds we would know with a piercing sense of, of uh, conviction that you love us, but you desire us and command us to walk after you in obedience and truth. In your son's name we pray, amen.